0: Bibles, I invite you to turn to Romans chapter 3 this morning. And we want to pick it up mid sentence, as it were, in chapter 3, verse 25. Romans 3, 25b through 31 is uh, what we want to cover this morning in our study. And I have titled the message, Just by Faith. Just by Faith. Lord, again, we thank you for your word now. Minister to our hearts as we study together. Give me grace to teach accurately and clearly in a way that edifies your people, in a way that uh, works in anyone that might be listening that's not a believer, to to draw them to yourself. Um, Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word. May it be so. Uh, Lord, we commit our time in the Word to you now. pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, you note on the overhead, uh, we are uh, in Romans, and the theme is the righteousness of God, the gospel of God. And we're in that section, justification by grace through faith in chapter 321 through 521. Well, Paul in Romans presents the most systematic presentation of the gospel that we have in the New Testament Scriptures. The word gospel means good news. But Paul starts out with the bad news of sin. You see, in order to appreciate the good news properly, uh, we first need to know about the bad news of our sin problem. And so this is where he starts out. After the prologue and or the introductory uh, verses, we have the whole world guilty before God. That's the bad news. Uh, depraved pagans, hypocritical moralists, self-righteous religionists, the whole human race. So categorically he goes through this and then ends up with that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No exception. Well, having presented the bad news of our universal sin problem, Paul then presents the good news of how God has made a way for sinners to be made right with Him through Christ and faith in Him. And so here's uh, my next slide related to God's solution. God's solution, Jesus our Savior. This is the good news. And under this, uh, he describes it in terms of grace, God's unmerited favor. We preach a gospel of grace. And further to explain this, he uses a couple $50 words, as I call them. Uh, One is redemption. To redeem means to set free by paying a price. Christ redeemed us at the cross. He paid the price. Uh, The penalty for sin is death. Required a death payment. Christ made the payment to set us free from the penalty of sin. And then the word propitiation. It's the idea of uh, God's wrath appeased through a blood sacrifice. He is the propitiation. And we talked about this last week. Uh, The word propitiation is translated as mercy seat in the Old Testament, in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew. And uh, at the mercy seat, you had the cherubim representing the presence of God in the Holy of Holies. And then you had the Ark of the Covenant. And in there was the law that's broken. And that's the uh, we got the holy god man has broken god's law and in between was the mercy seat on which the blood was applied on the annual day of atonement. Jesus is the picture of the mercy seat where the blood is applied to bring us into a right relationship with god. So in Romans 3:24 and 25a Paul has just made the point strongly that god has made a way for us to be right with him through faith in Jesus as our savior. Well, we now pick up Paul's thought mid-sentence in Romans 3:25. Let's read it. Romans 3:25, whom God set forth as a propitiation, a satisfactory payment, appeasement by his blood through faith. Well, this is this is what we covered last week. This is where we left off. And then he continues to demonstrate his righteousness Because in his forbearance, God passed over the sins that were previously committed. God made a public display of Jesus on the cross as a satisfactory blood offering that appeased his wrath on the basis of faith. This is how God made it possible for us to have a right relationship with him. Now in the remainder of verse 25 and 26, we see... Why God did it? To demonstrate His righteousness. Because in His forbearance, God passed over the sins that were previously committed. What Paul is saying is that Christ's cross work demonstrates God's righteousness, meaning His justice. Now, recall that at the beginning of this chapter, Paul, as it were, is interacting with a supposed Jewish religious objector who was challenging what he was saying. And it's almost like this Jewish religious objector is still in the background of Paul's mind because he is here dealing with the idea of God's righteousness being demonstrated in relation to the thousands of years of Old Testament history, which really focus on the Jewish people mainly as a nation. So Paul is making the point that the cross is god's way of showing how he has dealt with sin throughout history is right sins previously committed refers to those committed in the ages prior to the cross well the argument might be well okay uh, god at the cross has dealt with si- the sin problem going forward but what about those in the past how were their sins forgiven Did God just not deal with it? Is God consistent here? Well, John Phillips says, During the Old Testament era, it looked as if God dealt lightly and superficially with sin. Animal sacrifices could not remove sin, and there were times when it seemed that God overlooked sin altogether. But the cross reveals that this is not really true. So Paul shows that in past time, God did not immediately bring down judgment on sin. Rather, it was a time of forbearance. That is a time of restraint and patience. For a time, God passed over these sins, looking forward to the time when Christ would make full payment for them on the cross. In the meantime, God honored a stopgap sacrificial system which symbolized the coming of the ultimate solution, but never completely or fully dealt with the sin problem. We read in Acts chapter 17, truly these times of ignorance got overlooked. But now commands all men everywhere to repent. Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man he has ordained, he has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. However, the time came when God did exact a full payment for all past sin. And the cross demonstrates this. The Old Testament saints, too, needed to have a satisfactory forever payment for sin. But it awaited the coming of Christ. The cross is the focal point of God's redemptive program. In the Old Testament, they looked forward, albeit mostly in ignorance, to the cross when the Lord would lay on the Messiah the iniquity of us all, Isaiah 53, 6. We look back to the cross, but the center point of redemptive history is found in the cross. Indeed, Jesus came in the fullness of time to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world in total. So uh, just to diagram, uh, this is what we're talking about. Old Testament, they look forward in ignorance, but they, what they were doing here is they were believers in Yahweh. They followed in faith what he told them to do. And, you know, you had all these sacrifices, which were really symbolic, pointing forward. By faith, they looked forward. We now in the New Testament look back. But the centerpiece in God's redemptive program is the cross. And that's what Paul is driving home here in our study. The Old Testament saints were, in effect, saved on credit. At the cross, God retroactively canceled out the sin debt of all those who were people of faith prior to the cross. Paul's point is, the cross proves that God has righteously dealt with all sin including all past sin, in a way that did not compromise His holy justice. A provision for the payment of sin at the cross has been made, extending all the way back to Adam. But we on this side of the cross now live in the present time, that is, the present era of a post-cross experience. And the cross speaks universally to us as well concerning God's righteous dealing with our sin problem, as Paul now shows in verse 26. To demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Again, the emphasis is that the redeeming propitiatory work of the cross demonstrates the righteousness of God That is, that he is right in how he has dealt with our sin problem. The double emphasis in verses 25 and 26 on demonstrating God's righteousness stresses the importance of this point. I mean, God can't just overlook sin. It had to be dealt with in a way that doesn't compromise his holiness. And the cross demonstrates his righteousness, that he has dealt with it totally righteously. In a way that doesn't compromise His holiness. His holiness demanded a sin payment. Uh, The wages of sin is death. And it was exacted at the cross. And it was a sufficient payment for the whole of sin. Everybody's sin. The whole of mankind. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the entire world. On Him was laid the iniquity of us all. Specifically, it shows how this allows God to be just. Just. And the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is God's method of making us right. And He is totally consistent with His righteousness in so doing. The cross makes us right when we put our faith in Christ. And it doesn't compromise God's holiness in the process. God is just. Now the word just means righteous. In that at the cross, Christ made full payment for sin and satisfied God's wrath against it. And then on that basis, God can now justify, that is, declare righteous, the ungodly who come to faith in Jesus. Jesus, as our perfect substitute, enables God to save us by faith. And at the same time, not compromise His holiness. So the cross satisfies the holy demands of God and thereby makes a way for God to justify the ungodly who put their faith in Him. So no one can accuse God of being unfair or inconsistent because the just demands of sin related to the whole of history have once for all been paid for in full and this allows God to now pardon all who believe in Jesus. The cross has provided the grounds for full and free justification on the basis of faith because the just penalty for sin has been satisfied. Paul calls this amazing plan of salvation the wisdom of God. ESV Study Bible has a note. Here is the heart of the Christian faith. For at the cross, God's justice and love meet. Noted very carefully that while the cross was a satisfactory and sufficient payment for all sin, God only justifies those who put their faith in Jesus as Savior and Lord. God is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The way you make it yours, the way you appropriate it, is by faith in Jesus. On the divine side, God has made full provision. So there is no excuse. But on the human side, we must respond and appropriate the truth of it by faith. Verse 27 Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law or the principle of faith. You see, the cross removes all basis of boasting. Boasting is based on what we accomplish, on what we do, on what we merit or achieve. But in God's plan, Jesus has done it all at the cross. We call that grace, removing all basis of boasting in self. There is no place for self-congratulation. Now, we won't get to heaven. Let's say I go before you do, and you end up, and I say, Congratulations, you made it, good job. Nope, not going to happen. All self-congratulation is excluded. We know these verses, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace, God's favor, unmerited favor, you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves. The subject here is salvation, that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Hey, I did this, I did that. Look how good I am uh, having accomplished my salvation through what I did. No, no no one can boast. It's by grace. It's a gift through faith. Five different ways in these two verses. Paul says salvation is not our doing, and then concludes with lest anyone should boast. No braggers, no braggers in heaven. As we read in Revelation 5, the throngs in heaven are saying, worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive honor, glory, and blessing. And again in Revelation 7, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. No one in heaven is looking at Jesus and saying to Him, we did it. Great team effort today. No, no, no. Everyone in heaven is saying, Jesus did it. All glory to Him alone. Justification by faith alone removes all grounds of boasting, except one. Except one. And Paul mentions the one in Galatians 6, 14. God forbid that I should boast, except, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. If Jesus paid it all, which he did, as Paul shows, then by what law are we justified? We're not saved by keeping some law code. Are we justified by works? The emphatic answer is no. We are not justified by law-keeping or by works of any kind. And therefore, there is absolutely no basis for any boasting, It is excluded more literally. It is shut out. (laughs) A very literal translation, uh, excluded, is shut out. It is shut out. I love this unknown author here, but it makes the point. The feast of mercy was on. The damsel grace was at the door, admitting everyone who came on the ground of mercy alone. Old Mr. Boasting, in a high hat, in fine suit, presented himself. Oh, said Grace, as she quickly shut the door in his face. There is no room for you here. The people here are feasting on the free gifts of God. So Mr. Boasting was shut out. Yes, no boasting. So on what basis are we saved? Not by law, not by works, but by the law of faith. The law of faith means the rule or the principle of faith. We're justified by faith. You know, we're going to get there. We're headed there. But Romans 5.1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the law or the principle of faith is the opposite of works. You need to get that. A lot of good theologians don't seem to get this. I don't know if they're good, but theologians, uh, the law or the principle of faith is the opposite of works. This is important to note because I know of some preachers who say that if you say the one thing we must do is believe, then you are really teaching a work salvation. But Paul right here says that the law of faith is contrary to works. Faith is not a work. In Romans 4.16, Paul says, It is of faith that it might be according to grace. Faith is according to grace, not contradictory to it. In Acts 16, the Philippian jailer cried out, What must I do to be saved? The response came back, Oh, nothing. No. The response came back, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be safe. That's what you must do. You must believe. This intersects with human response and human responsibility. The word but here in Romans 3.27 is a contrast word. The law of faith is in contrast to works and law keeping. And provides no basis for boasting. Faith, instead of claiming accomplishments, rests in Jesus' finished work. Faith, as defined by the Bible, by its very nature, is in another and not in self. Instead of championing what I have done, it celebrates what Jesus has done. Faith says, I did all the sinning, and Jesus alone does all the saving. Faith says, it's all about Jesus, and I believe it. When Jesus died on the cross, he did so all alone. He alone is the Savior of all who believe in him. I love this little true story. I don't know if you can read this up here. I'll read it to you. Uh, After Michael Jordan scored a career-high 69 points in one game, his teammate Stacy King said, I'll always remember this as the night that Michael Jordan and I combined to score 70 points. You know, this is how some people see salvation. Jesus does most of the scoring. I mean, he does the heavy lifting. But in their minds, in their thinking, and in their theology, errant theology, they believe that they too make a little contribution. That is dead wrong. Jesus does all the scoring, so to speak. Jesus alone paid our sin debt. All we do is believe it. Salvation is totally by the law of faith. Not by the law of works. It's all grace. That is what Jesus has done. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. John MacArthur says, The greatest lie in the world, and that's a big one, the greatest lie in the world and the lie common to all false religions and cults is that by certain works of their own doing, men are able to make themselves acceptable to God. Yeah, that, that, that's, what, you know, that's the difference between authentic Christianity and all the other religions of the world. Christianity is all about it's been done. The rest of the religions of the world, are it's about what we're doing. Uh, On the one hand, you have they're trying. On the other hand, we are trusting in Jesus' finished work. Pride in what we do to save ourselves is completely incompatible with true saving faith. We are humbled in saving faith. I I, I can't do anything. I'm humbled. Faith recognizes I have no self-merit to help me on to God. It gives no place to pride whatsoever. Habakkuk 2, verse 4. When I survey the wondrous cross... Well, let me read the verse. I'm getting ahead of myself. Isaac Watts. Uh, Habakkuk 2, 4. Behold the proud. His soul is not upright in him. But the just shall live by his faith. So there's a contrast between the proud and the just who live by faith. And then Isaac Watts, he wrote this in 1707... Uh, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Faith eliminates pride because it realizes salvation is not based on human achievement. Faith exalts what God has done, not what people do. William MacDonald says, True faith disavows any possibility of self-help, self-improvement, or self-salvation, looking only to Christ as Savior. So faith eliminates pride that goes with human effort or achievement because faith is not an outward deed that we do. Rather, as Paul has already shown in Romans 2.29, faith is an inward spiritual response. Romans 2.29, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, Circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. Now, it is good to remember that even faith itself is the result of God's grace at work in our lives. The ground of our salvation is totally Jesus. Faith is merely the means of receiving it, albeit it's a very important reality. But our faith is not in the means... But in the Savior Himself. You know, we don't have faith in our faith, but faith in Jesus. The object of our faith is just Jesus. Verse 28 Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith, apart from the deeds of the law. Here is the conclusion of the major point that Paul has been making. Justified is God's judicial declaration in which he declares the believer righteous. On what basis does God do this? Well, on the basis of faith. Faith alone. Note it says, by faith apart from the deeds of the law. The deeds of the law are all the things God commands either to do or not to do. Faith that justifies is totally apart from the deeds of the law. We're not saved by faith plus doing the deeds of the law. The do's and the don'ts that God commands. But rather by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Note uh, the emphasis here. Romans 3.21, But now the righteousness of God, how we're made right with God, apart from the law is revealed. Apart from the law. And then here in verse 28, we conclude that a man is justified by faith, apart from the deeds of the law. How are we made right with God? By faith, apart from the deeds of the law. It's not by law keeping. Say, Well, I keep the rules, I do this, I keep the Ten Commandments. Yeah, I, no, you don't. That's the problem. Neither do I. What Paul is saying is that we're made right with God, justified by faith, completely independent. ...of doing anything in terms of outward obedience. Yes, we're saved by the obedience of faith... an internal response of the heart... ...but not by the obedience of works. Works are the fruit... ...but faith alone is the root. Note these aspects of justification... ...in the book of Romans. Number one, justification by grace... That's what he says in verse 24. Its source is found only in the unmerited favor of God. We don't deserve it. I mean, people say, well, I'm not getting what I deserve. You're right. You're you're not in hell yet. Uh, That's what we all deserve. Justification is by grace, by God's favor, unmerited favor. And then justification by blood. We'll get to this in Romans 5, 9, which is really uh, an extension of what he says by grace. When the Bible says by grace, if you say, if you could almost insert the word cross there, this is the ultimate demonstration of grace. Justification by blood. Its basis is found in the work which the Savior did on the cross. And then justification by faith. Its channel through which it is applied to us is by faith. When Luther uh, translated Romans 3.28 uh, into German, he added the word alone. So, in effect, it read justified justified by faith alone in in his translation, which, although not in the Greek, does accurately reflect the sense of the passage. Now, I base the title of this message on the sense of verse 28 here. I title it just by faith. And what I intended is what we might call a double entendre, meaning the phrase is capable of two interpretations. So, notice what I'm talking about. Just, the word just means righteous, just by faith, we're righteous by faith, but it can also mean only, just only by faith. Well, what do you mean, Pastor Dwight? I mean both. I mean, we're righteous by faith and only by faith. Now again, it's almost like Paul is expecting a Jewish objector to take exception to his conclusion, of justification by faith alone. And so he says, verse 29, or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. And all of us Gentiles say, yes, of the Gentiles also. Justification by faith alone shows that God is a God for all people, not only the Jews, but also the Gentiles. All are equally sinners And all who are saved are equally saved by faith alone. That's always been the case. God made it clear in the book of Jonah that he is a God of everyone, of the Gentiles as well as the Jews, to everyone who will repent and believe on him. In the Old Testament, clearly many Gentiles were saved as well as Jews, including such notables as Rahab, Ruth, and Naaman. And Peter although through and through a Jew came to see this also. He said in Acts chapter 10, as he's now going to the Gentiles, and God really had to kind of force Peter into this mold, kind of like Jonah going to Nineveh, not quite, but uh, you know, Peter just had a hard time with this. But Peter opened his mouth and said, in truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. <laughs> revelation, God has shown me this. And what is it? In every nation. Whoever fears him, reverences him in saving faith, and works righteousness, the fruit, is accepted by him. God made it clear to Abram that in him all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Genesis 12, 3. It was never just about the Jews. God does not have two ways of salvation. One for the Jews... And another for the Gentiles. There is one God and one plan of salvation. And salvation is always by faith alone in every era for all people. Although revelation was progressive. God's law shuts the mouths of everyone so that all the world may be shown to be guilty of breaking God's law. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. These standards apply to everyone. But in the cross, a universal provision for sin has been demonstrated. And now the universal invitation has gone out that whoever desires can by faith come and take of the water of life freely. Last invitation in the Bible, Revelation twenty two seventeen. Paul continues his thought, verse 30, Since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Paul's reasoning is this. There's only one true God. There is not a God for the Jews and a separate God for the Gentiles. We read uh, the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's only one. 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Yet for us there is one God the Father, of whom are all things, and and we for Him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through Him we live. There's only one God and only one plan of salvation. And God's plan of writing people with Himself is by faith, universally true. This is true of both Jew and Gentile. We as believers meet at the same reality of Christ and his finished work on the cross. And we do so by faith. Jews are saved by faith, Gentiles are saved through faith. The instrumental cause of justification in both cases is faith. There is no difference. Justification is on the basis of faith universally. The issue is not one of religious ritual, such as circumcision, compare baptism or sacraments to today but totally an issue of faith. It all comes down to Jesus and faith. It's faith alone in Jesus alone that saves. Bible knowledge commentary has a good summary statement here. The one God over both Jews and Gentiles will justify all who come to him regardless of background, circumcised or uncircumcised, on the same human condition of faith. Galatians chapter 3, 26. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And then he goes to the conclusion, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. On what basis? Through faith. Justification is by faith in Jesus alone. This message is very strong throughout this whole section. I want you to see this. Note the emphasis here. Uh, Verse 22, through faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 22, on all who believe. 25, by his blood through faith. 26, justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. 27, by the law of faith. 28, a man is justified by faith. 330, justify the circumcision, uh, circumcised by faith. 330, uncircumcised through faith. oh, You think he intended us to get the point? Eight times. Eight times. In every way you can imagine, Paul emphasizes that justification is by faith alone. God's way is by faith and faith alone. That is Paul's whole main point in this whole section. Yes, it's all about Jesus. Who He is as our Redeemer. Who He is as our propitiation. It's all about what He has done. But we must appropriate him by faith. And it must be by faith alone. This is God's way. The only way one can be saved. To jump ahead just a little bit, Paul will go on to emphasize a true saving faith, the right kind of faith, is when a person is not trusting in their works at all, but only and totally In Jesus. This is justifying faith. Again, next week, Lord willing, we'll get to this. But Romans 4 5. But to him who does not work. To him who does not work. I'm not working. I'm not doing. To him who does not work. But believes on him who justifies the ungodly. His faith. This person's faith is accounted for righteous. Who? The one who's not working but rather is believing. A true faith is not depending on your own works at all. But only on Jesus. This reality of justification by faith alone is a hill to die on. It's not a secondary matter as so many professing Christians seem to think today. It's the crux of the matter. One recent survey in recent years said that 74% of the evangelicals who did this particular survey said that, quote, an individual must contribute to his or her own effort for personal salvation. You know what that tells me? 74% of professing evangelicals don't know the Lord. I mean, if it's true. Those that believe they are contributing to their salvation through their own efforts, and I don't care what you do, do not understand God's way of justification by faith alone. And in truth, they are not saved. They have not yet come to the knowledge of the truth by which we are saved. The five solas of the Reformation are all hills to die on, theologically speaking. Sola is the Latin word meaning alone. And uh, so here you have... uh, The five solas of the Reformation. Salvation or justification is by grace. Not grace plus merit, which would cancel out grace. By grace alone. Through faith. Not faith plus works. Through faith alone. In Christ. Plus me, what I do. No. In Christ alone. According to scripture. Plus tradition. No. According to scripture. Alone. For God's glory. Plus mine. No for God's glory alone. So salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, for God's glory alone. In Romans 3, 21 through 31, Paul hammers home the first three of these solas. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. All truly saved people hold to this. It's a matter of saving faith. It's a matter of the right kind of faith. Verse 31. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. Does the truth of justification by faith alone then cancel out any purpose for the law? That's a good question, right? I mean, just completely said apart from the law, apart from the law. It's all about faith. Faith, it's, it's apart from the law. Well, why do we need the law then? Is there any, Does it serve any purpose? Well, Paul says, no, it does not cancel out the law. He responds strongly with, certainly not. The law still has value and has purpose. On the contrary, the truth of justification by faith establishes the law. Now the question is, how does the truth of faith establish the law? There's been lots of ink spilled over this. Lots of discussion. Lots of different ideas. However, you know, in my study, my personal study, you know, I I read lots of different people for 40 years I've been studying. And uh, I like to think in terms of The immediate context. People sometimes like to to say, okay, well, now I'm going to make my point from a far distant context, and I'm going to incorporate it right into here. Well, there's a place for cross-referencing, true. But I like to think first and foremost in terms of the immediate context. And as I do so, I see three major points of emphasis that show the ongoing value of the law. The word law is used in four different ways. In Romans 3 alone, it's used in reference to the first five books of the Old Testament, in reference to the moral law of God, in reference to an operating principle, and then in reference to the entire Old Testament. The word law here in verse 31 lacks the definite article in both cases. I take it that Paul is referring to the the entire Old Testament in general. Note these three points. First, the law is established in the sense that by the law is the knowledge of sin as brought out in 3.20. This is Paul's long premise leading up to the gospel as seen in Romans 1, 18 through 3.20. You see, the law shows us our sin and therefore our need of a Savior. As Paul says in Galatians 3.24, the law was our tutor. It was our teacher. It was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. So it definitely has a purpose. Second, in the law, there are many varied prophetic types and shadows, including the mercy seat, that find their ultimate fulfillment in Christ. As Paul says in Romans 3.22, the righteousness of God is witnessed by the law and the prophets. The law required the death penalty for sin, which was driven home for 1,500 years under the sacrificial system. And then building on this, we find Jesus being the ultimate propitiation, satisfactory payment for sin by his blood. And then third, the truth of justification by faith alone is illustrated in the law, as Paul will immediately go on to demonstrate in Romans 4 from the life of Abraham. It is in the law that we find the great truth that the just shall live by faith. So, Does faith put the law out of a job? The answer is no. The truth is the law and the gospel have different jobs, but they work hand in hand. The law was preparatory in that it prepared the way for salvation in Christ, but it was not the way of salvation. The law says, Do, and you'll live. The gospel says, Believe and you will live. The law and the gospel each have their own job to do and we must not confuse them. You see, the law's job is to bring conviction and condemnation. And it's very good at its job. The gospel's job is to bring salvation. It becomes a problem when you give the law the gospel's job or when you give the gospel the law's job. To mix the two is to ruin both. Rightly dividing the word of truth here is essential. The law shows us our need. The gospel meets that need. And God's way of appropriating his provision is by faith. So indeed, the law continues to have value and purpose in helping to bring us to faith. So in summary, what are we seeing as far as faith principles here in our study today? Well, God justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. Faith excludes boasting. Justification is by faith, not by law. God justifies all by faith. And faith establishes the law. Well, exhibit A for the truth of justification by faith alone, in terms of a passage, is found here in Romans 3, 21 through 31. Exhibit A, in terms of an illustration from Scripture is the converted thief on the cross. You see, he was hanging there on the cross. He couldn't get baptized. He couldn't go make it right with those that he had wronged. I mean, what do you do in that position? He could do nothing other than look to Jesus in faith. And when he did, what did Jesus say? I wish you'd have started earlier working your way towards the kingdom. No! No! Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. I mean, if he could have jumped off that cross with joy, I'm sure he would have. Donald Walker writes, great was the faith of the thief displayed on the cross that day. He saw no mark on Christ that he was the life, the way. And yet for that thief, in faith, he believed. And in his dying hour, he showed for all eternity that faith, not works, has saving power. The Bible is very clear that with God, there is no partiality. God in perfect accord with his righteousness justifies by faith. And he does so with absolute total consistency. Hebrews 11 says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. And then shows it down through the ages. The great issue before God has always been faith. It's not a new concept. God saved the repentant thief on the cross in exactly the same way he has ever saved anyone. And that is on the basis of faith alone. The cross forever demonstrates that God is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. We're not saved by works, but by the law of faith. God justifies by faith. Justification is by faith alone. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Here is the ultimate question. What are you trusting in to get to heaven? That's the ultimate issue. Jesus said in John six forty seven: Most assuredly, I say to you, He who believes in me has everlasting life. Have you believed on him alone to save you? Believe. On the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Let's stand and have our closing song.